0: We praise you, Father, that the Son is our hope in life and death. We have no fear of death ultimately. In our flesh, we do. But we praise you that we have the confidence that you have defeated death, that you have given us life, and you've given us your word, and you've given us hope. And in this, we turn independence. We pray that you'd open the word to our understanding, that you'd open the eyes of the blind, that you would feed the hungry souls, and that here your name would be praised and magnified, and that we would rejoice as a church in hearing things old, things familiar, and things new, as you bring them to our attention by the conviction of your Spirit, as we review our faith and consider our world. Lord, may we labor hard here to be faithful servants of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. The story of mankind is plagued by the toxic combination of hatred and power. Hatred in a person's heart, hatred in the soul of a society is polluting in and of itself. But combine that unloving hatred with a position of power and you have a lethal prescription for oppression. On the other hand, when a position of power is combined with a heart of love, great good and blessing can result. The psalmist David recognized this, 2 Samuel 23, his hymn of praise to God. He says, the God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel has said to me. So God has spoken to David and says this, when one rules justly over men, Ruling in the fear of God, He dawns on them like the morning light. Put yourself in that scene. He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth, green, alive, and rich. There's a beauty that God gives to man when one rules in the fear of God. But when that same position of power is joined to a loveless heart, the pages of human history run with blood and echo mournful cries from genocide and ethnic cleansing to racism and slavery to all manner of unjust treatment of people at every level of society. Narrowing the focus, let us affirm... That it is good then when people decry racism. It's good when they object to the use of a position of power to institutionalize hatred and justify the unfair treatment of vulnerable people groups. Looking into the face of those two verses in front of us here, we know that it is good when the opposite is decried when it is condemned yet as we operate from a biblical worldview two grave concerns dampen our enthusiasm when these voices are sounded the first is that the world's assessment of racism is woefully understated it it wholly underestimates the problem And secondly, the world's answers to the problem of racism are embarrassingly shallow, short-sighted, and miscalculated. To say it succinctly, by underestimating the problem, the solutions all fall short. So our hearts rise with hope when people decry the toxic combination of hatred and power. When they insist that the majority population, for instance, never uses its position of power to disadvantage minority populations or institutionalize hatred against them. Our hearts rise, but then they sink when those same voices are unwilling to go deep enough into the problem to find real solutions. So it's disheartening to us then, though we join the voices of opposition on one level. It's disheartening when we see the angry lot looting and destroying property and crippling police forces and fighting injustice with more injustice and clamoring for the restart of America. Imagine that. America year one with a new set of angry people in positions of power. And it's disheartening to hear more tempered advocates just talking incessantly, renaming things, pointing fingers, setting trendy policies, all of which will accomplish nothing. Well, I think in the midst of all of this, unless I confuse anyone about what I'm saying here, I, I think it's very important that we not lose heart, that we not abandon our labors as ambassadors for Christ. We don't say, my home is in heaven, let this world burn. We say, my home is in heaven, and I'm ambassador here and for now. We have a job to do, and we need to stay in the fight. But it is also important, and here I have fear for gospel-preaching churches, it is also important that we not exchange a biblical perspective of racism for the ignorant diagnoses and hopeless solutions that are being proposed by our world. Here we must think more clearly. And to that end, I want to merely stir up your pure minds by way of reminders, the Apostle Paul put it, to share nothing new with this church, but to deepen the roots and feed the roots of our biblical theology, to understand the roots of racism from a biblical perspective, from the position that God would reveal to us in His Word so I'd like to lift that theme from select eras of progressive revelation. And please understand, it's important as we go through these eras, briefly, as we go through these eras of biblical revelation, I'm not hitting the central interpretive point necessarily, but looking and picking out this theme and seeing how these passages reveal this, God's thinking on this theme. So it's not that the Bible is all about racism, but it is that as we think about racism, we can think about it biblically as we pull out that theme from the various eras of biblical revelation. That's what I want to attempt today. It might be a fool's errand that we're going to cover a lot of space here today, but we're going to try. All right? So Genesis, we start there, of course, and here I'll have you turn uh, to that passage in the Scriptures, Genesis chapter 1. We find, first of all, the creation mandate. Uh, We must start here. We must tie things here as we consider this idea. So, verse 27 of Genesis 1 God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful. And multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I'd like us to lock into here on three verbs. Fill, subdue, have dominion. God created man to exercise power. To rule the earth as a race. And the fundamental unit in the makeup of that global exercise of power, the, the smallest unit, the fundamental unit, is the family. Well, how does that first family fare in their calling to collaboratively fill the earth and subdue it? We come then secondly from the creation man, mandate to Adam and Eve in chapter three of Genesis. And here, of course. Disaster strikes. Adam and Eve break God's law by eating from the single fruit tree that God set off limits. Chapter 3 and verse 6, we see that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Here's how we will exercise dominion. We'll go our own way. We'll do our own thing. We'll ignore the voice of God, and here's the way forward. Well, God confronts Adam and Eve with their sin, and the head of his wife, I say that purposely, as the head of his wife, how does Adam respond? Not in loving defense, but rather he slaps her down with blame-shifting accusation. Chapter 3, verse 12. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit, the fruit of the tree, and I ate. It's utterly pathetic. Adam uses his position of headship as a platform from which to pin the blame of his sin on the suitable helper that God had given to him. Now we note then the abuse of Adam's headship, his position of power is not only in this moment, but that position of power is systemically corrupted. That is at its deepest level, feeding everything that he does from here forward in human history is corrupted by this abuse of power. Again, I'm looking at it just from this angle as we consider the topic of racism. But I think it's appropriate to do so. That's what happens and that's what the text reveals. Because in the curse of the woman, chapter 3, verse 16, notice it. To the woman he said, I'll surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. That's her dominion, how she will fill the earth, her part in filling the earth. Her work is cursed, but so is a relationship with her husband. Second part of verse 16, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. That's part of the curse. Adam does not become Eve's head because she sinned. Adam's headship was God's original design. But the key here in verse 16 is again that word desire. And we've reviewed this in various contexts many times. But remember again, this word desire is found only two other times in the Old Testament. The first use is is in the Song of Solomon, or first use I'll mention, is in the Song of Solomon, and it speaks of sexual desire. Her desire will be for her husband. So if we take it that way from the Song of Solomon, it will be her sexual desire will be for her husband, and this is part of the curse. That work for you? The, the second use of this word is found in Genesis 4 7. There it speaks of control. There it speaks of seeking to overcome, or their sin overcoming Cain. So, knowing that sex is a gift from God to married couples, it makes no sense that, we, that it would be part of God's curse for her to have sexual desire for her husband. This would be a blessing, not a curse. But in keeping with the meaning in the very near context of the next chapter, chapter 4 and verse 7, Eve's desire to revel in her husband's headship now is corrupted into a desire to gain mastery over him, to resist that headship. So her sinful husband then, how would he react to that relationship from her? He would seek to rule over her. And that is part of the curse. That is, Adam would be tempted to use his position of power not to love his wife, but to dominate her. So, in other words, God is saying sin has corrupted everything. Sin has corrupted everything. It has gone to the very depths of how she will relate to you, and it's gone to the very depths, Adam, of how you will relate to your wife. And you've already demonstrated it when you shifted the blame to her. So, to be clear, Eve would be tempted to wrest control from Adam or to wrongly step into the gap of his failure to lead his home. Adam would be tempted to respond sinfully either by aggressive domination or by punishing Eve by withdrawing or both. Ortland in the book Marriage, says it this way. I think, well, when it comes to the family... It's defiant feminism, butting heads with arrogant patriarchy. Those are my words, but that's summarizing his point. Defiant feminism, butting heads with arrogant patriarchy. So created to exercise dominion as a couple, sin now corrupts the race to use power in harmful ways. It's at the very heart of the relationship of the first parents. And it's always there. Well, maybe things will go better for the siblings, for the children. Well, that brings us to chapter 4, and they don't go better, do they? Chapter 4 and verse 8 Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. I mean, we've only got a few pages into this thing, and we've already got this one brother killing another. It's that bad. Older brother, Cain, lures his younger brother into a trap and overpowers the brother that he's come to hate. Again, unloving hatred and power unite, and the oppressed is killed. Cain and Abel. Joseph and his brothers, we skip to that in the book of Genesis, and we know that story as well. The 11th Son of Jacob, the messianic family line, the line that's going to rescue us from all of this sin. That line, the 11th son of Jacob, becomes so hated by his brothers, they actually plot to kill him. Persuaded by brother number four, Judah, they decide to profit from their hatred rather than simply vent it while they render Joseph as good as dead. They sell him into slavery, into Egypt. Not because of the color of skin, of course. They're biological brothers. They sell him into slavery because there are two things going on. One, in their heart, they hate the man. And two, in their numbers, they can overpower him. There's ten against one the majority against the minority and we hate him they sell him into slavery they use their position that way they sell him into slavery where he is enslaved to the powerful egyptian official named potiphar joseph's circumstances however go from bad to worse in that household, Potiphar's wife, consider it, she is in a position of power, what she says is going to go, and she accuses him falsely, and it's his word against hers. Her position of power allows her scorned heart to punish Joseph unjustly, and again, there's nothing Joseph can do. There's no justice here. But the story of Joseph's enslavement, of course, doesn't lay still for long at all, does it? We come right into the next book, and what took place in the individual life of Joseph now takes place in the life of the entire nation of Israel. On a national scale, this same type of abuse takes place. And it seemed like all would go well as Pharaoh welcomed Joseph. And Israel came to Egypt, and everything seemed to be in good order, until we come to the book of Exodus chapter 1, if you'll notice there, Exodus 1, verse 8, Exodus chapter 1 and verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Here's not majority power, but minority power, perhaps. I don't know the exact who had the most. But it could be that. Likely the Egyptians outnumbered the Israelites, but they're concerned about what's going on. There's also historical background here to the fact that this Pharaoh probably was a minority who had come in through various means. But all of that left aside for now He said to his people, look what's happening. Verse 10, come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. They didn't go to Pithom and Ramses with their work boots and helmets and Osha a lot of them didn't come home when you build Pharaoh's cities you're just a living breathing tool and we know the oppression of Israel that develops Into chapter 5, the trial of the enslaved Israelites deepens as they're driven to the verge of extinction by their Egyptian overlords. Pharaoh's fearful hatred of the Israelites evolves even into infanticide, throwing little baby boys into the Nile River. In the end, God intervenes, of course, to break Pharaoh's oppressive rule over Israel. God miraculously delivers Israel from Egypt and this deliverance becomes the defining redemptive theme in Israel's history. And for those who are not in a minority position within a society, to those who have never been enslaved, there's a piece of this that we miss. Israel never missed it. Israel understood bondage like perhaps no one here today ever could in this world. God delivered us from that. This brings us to the Mosaic Law. And let me consider just two passages here very briefly, which link ideally with these themes that we've considered. Deuteronomy 6, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes, the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Let me stop there and say, kids are going to ask that question, particularly Israelites. We're slaughtering these animals. We're doing these strange skin rituals and uh, uh, bodily emission rules and the like. And and This is complicated. Why do we do these things? Notice where they go immediately, where God takes them immediately. Verse 21, then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. So it it gets out of, well, let me tell you why we got to do this with the skin and the mold and the houses and the things like that. There's a reason behind it. No, it's let me tell you a story. Let me tell you who we are. This is our heritage. This is our history. We were slaves. That's what leads into the understanding of the laws and the statutes of the Lord. We were redeemed by God from Egypt. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Their redemption was to have direct influence also on how they treated minorities and the vulnerable among them. Leviticus 19, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. So you see the connection here. You were slaves in Egypt, you were delivered, now you're going to go to a land that I will give you and you'll be the majority. You'll be in a position of power. So, how do you look at this Israel? Now that we're in a position of power, it's our turn. Now we can use that position and it's our right. And that's not so much the case in this country, perhaps becoming more so as we lose biblical moorings. But you can go to countries today, I've been in countries today, where the official, it's just understood. Now that that official has come to power, it's his turn to abuse people. It just goes with the office, it's a right. Is that how you're going to think? No. When you come to the land that I'm giving you, verse 34, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You see the reasoning. You were strangers in the land of Egypt, so you will love the sojourner as you love yourself. You will not use your majority position to harm. God directly instructs Israel this way. Let's move to the monarchy. And with David's reign, we've already considered this passage, but remember it again, verse 4, he dawns on them, the ruler who rules in the fear of God, says the Lord, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. There were seasons in David's reign where this verse proved true. That is, he was the fulfillment of it. To live in Israel under David's reign at various places, you knew that power was being used to bless. Power was being used to exalt the name of God, and it was a beautiful thing. Love in the heart of the king was flowing to the people for good. But there were times when the king's position of power was used for evil. The reason was that sin is deeply rooted in the human heart. But Before we get to that sin, let's go back in time briefly to Samuel's warning. This warning was issued by Samuel because he was deeply troubled by Israel's desire for a king. And this, actually the way we're thinking about this topic here, helps us understand Samuel's opposition to Israel's desire. You want a king? Do you know what that means? You're putting someone with a corrupt heart in a place where they will have power over you. Let me tell you what that looks like. There's one benevolent king, and that is the Lord. He is over your nation submit to him, appreciate this, go with it. No, Israel says, we want a king like the other nations. We want to strut about as a nation and say, look at us, look at our big king, look at the power that we have, all right, says Samuel. Of course, God directs him this way, but he told, Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king for him. And he said, These will be the ways of the king who will rule over you. Sounds pretty bold, doesn't it? This is what's going to happen. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, And to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground, and some to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war, and to equip and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. And oh, how much worse! He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. That is, the people in his influence. The people who have power because they are close to him. And he will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them in his, to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. You're going to jump off a cliff, and halfway down you're going to start screaming, and nothing's going to change. You're going to hit the bottom. This warning was realized perhaps most fully in the reign of King Solomon. Because of his wealth, his riches, his influence, he used his people to continue to build his own name and indeed the nation, but at the cost of many individuals in Israel. But let's go back to the reading this morning. Circle back there and look not at Solomon, but at David and his sin with Bathsheba. We'll not take the time to re-read the narrative. If you'd like, I'd encourage you to turn to 2 Samuel, verse 11. You can just look at it there, uh, skim it there as you see fit. But we'll be focusing here for a few moments on this narrative. Now, because of the angle we're looking at, because of the theme that we're on here, I think I want to say particularly here, just a a couple of notes that we get this rolling in the right way. And that is, first of all, that Bathsheba was not willfully seducing David, as some preachers claim. You would think from some sermons on this text that the number one principle is that you should not seduce someone. That's not the point of this narrative. And you could prove that again and again if you just read it and look at where the emphasis is placed. But let's go back culturally. The city of David would have basically fit on our church's property. And it was densely populated. And it was on a hill, so there were many different elevations. And there were no showers. There were no bathrooms in the homes. Where you bathed was outside in the courtyard. A sponge bath, or perhaps descending into a mikvah, which was like a, a hole in the ground carved out of the rock that collected rainwater. One way or another, that's how you took your bath. You didn't turn on the shower. So bathing done outside in this way, from the elevation of his palace roof in the tight quarters of Jerusalem, David's visual on Bathsheba was simply a matter of course. It was a matter of circumstance. Did you remember how verse 2 put it? It happened. And if, if it was Bathsheba seeking to seduce David, I think it's almost incredible to think that, like beyond credibility, to even think such a thing. But the text never brings that out. It never points us in that direction, so I think it's a wrong path to go. All of that said, I think we can fairly confidently know as well that the messengers that David sent to Bathsheba's door were not maids who tried to persuade her to give in to this request. They were undoubtedly male representatives of the king. I wouldn't doubt that they had a sword on their side. They were here on official business. It would have been better, I believe, and let's say on the basis of what God has revealed, it would have been better for Bathsheba to die resisting than to do what she did. But the emphasis of the narrative is on David's use of power to put her in a nearly impossible situation. And in that day, given the rule of kings, she didn't have a whole lot of options. It was cooperate or die. But far more obviously, of course, David abuses his position of power by killing Uriah. This murder was not motivated by the sort of hatred that is just pure hatred, but by the kind of hatred, the way that Jesus, in fact, uses the word at times, that it was a thorough lack of love. Here for a soldier who fought faithfully for David's honor. David's heart was simply empty of love for Uriah. And his position of power then enabled him to demand Bathsheba for himself and to kill this innocent man. There could have been many enemies of Uriah in Israel. They didn't have this power. They couldn't do this. There may have been many men who lusted for his wife. They didn't have this power and they could not do this. But David could. And at the end of the chapter, we notice this Horrifying statement, the last sentence, that the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And here we'll stop our survey, but let's springboard off of this statement. This displeased God. Now, of course, on many, many levels, we're looking only at one aspect. But it displeased God the Lord, connected to 2 Samuel 23, it displeased the Lord because David was not ruling Israel in a way that brought life and prosperity and blessing. He was using his power for selfish reasons and he was harming others. So let's just think back through by way of assessment. This displeased the Lord. Adam, How does God respond? Now, think of these these misuses of power and then think of how God responds. Adam, God curses him. He doesn't say, Oh, Adam, wow, I'm really sorry to hear that about Eve. Uh, I thought this would work out a little bit better. He had a real good point here. If she hadn't done that, you wouldn't have done this. It's ridiculous, isn't it? He cursed him, didn't buy his line didn't side with him Cain does God side with him yeah I know I'm kind of been treating him a little better than you here a little bit of favoritism on my part as a heavenly father and I'm sorry about that foolishness isn't it of course not he curses him sends him away from society Joseph's brothers How does God respond? God exalts Joseph and humiliates and disciplines his brothers who probably never again could entirely hold their head high. Pharaoh? Wow. God judges Pharaoh, judges Egypt with ten plagues and then drowns Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea right after taking his firstborn son. The law, how does God respond? God counsels Israel in a position of power and he works to defend the stranger. David, God severely disciplines him the rest of his life. David wrecked a home, murdered an innocent man, and the rest of his life witnessed the ruination of his own home and the death of several sons. I mean, what do you think here? Is God being, you know, kind of clear? What he thinks? Every single one, God says, I am against this. And as we survey the whole Bible, and here's where I think we want to bring a whole Bible view to the topic of our day, to the conversation of our day, as we bring a whole Bible view to this issue of racism, particularly we realize that scenarios like this are played out throughout Scripture. It began with Adam in paradise and this cancer has metastasized into every nook and cranny of the human experience ever since. One would think, by listening to the rhetoric of certain activists these days, that racial injustice in America is the grandest of all failures in the history of mankind. They elevate it as some unusual thing. Read the Bible. Read history. It's no unusual thing. Racism is deeply offensive to God. If you use power and then the hate that's in your heart toward an individual, that is evil. And any Bible-believing person would agree, I think. But sadly, tragically, the history of every nation on earth is riddled with genocide. People, in fact, that look so similar, you and I could never tell the difference, kill each other. Because they're now the same tribe. The history of every nation is riddled with genocide and slavery, oppression of minorities, the oppression of women, the oppression of children, systemic tribalism, and systemic racism. This is the human race. This is the human heart. It is everywhere, in every nation, at every level of society. And when hearts empty of love, filled with pride and selfishness, gain positions of power, you can count on it. Minorities and the weak and the vulnerable and whoever is not in charge will suffer. Now again, it doesn't mean we give up but it means we recognize the reality. This toxic marriage of hate and power will never be rooted out by thinking that somehow we're going through something unusual here, and if we just alter our systems or maybe reboot and start over with a new history, that this is somehow going to change the problem. The, this evil is rooted in the human heart and mankind's innate rebellion against God. So when I say that it is a miscalculation of the depths of the problem, we tie that to, for instance, Romans 3. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one is good. Not even one. To the very depths of Of every single human heart that has ever lived, this sin is rooted. And it will show itself in unloving ways. So there's a tremendous underestimation here. Do those words go together? Tremendous underestimation. But there's there's an underestimation here that's terrifying. The underestimation is not that America's broken, we got to get some things fixed here. Give the controls to us and we'll get it fixed. No, the underestimation in all of that is this, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The wages of racism is judgment before the throne of God in eternity. The only answer is forgiveness of sin and the transformation of the human heart. And the answer to that is Jesus Christ crucified and risen. There is no other answer. Jesus gives his people a new heart to those who repent of sin and receive him in faith. There is a new heart that can love even enemies. And so for those who put our trust and faith in Christ crucified and risen, that he paid the penalty of my sin on the cross, I trust this. I know there can be no other answer. I trust in His resurrection power for those of us who have so been redeemed from the bondage of sin. The call to us is like the call to Israel to respond that way. How was Israel to treat strangers and sojourners knowing that they had been delivered from Egypt? Well, we of all people should understand the depths of human depravity. We should recognize how bound up and blind Our world is as they seek to fix the problems that sin is causing. We of all people should get this as Christians, both biblically and in worldwide communion. We know what it means to have power stacked against us, as a persecuted church always understands. And so, a brief word to white-majority eden baptist members i think as we filter all of this we don't look at this and say we want to we want to saddle up with the trendy ideas of the day not not at all we're saying where have you been Uh, this has been going on everywhere all the time we see this we know this we know this world and we know what the answer is so it's not that but i do think we could say by way of application don't dismiss the history of oppressed people Don't dismiss it. It's real. What we're saying there when we say, well, that was in the past. That's not going on now. We're saying that was, it kind of comes across like that was not offensive to God. He's over it. There is a terrible history of abuse and oppression, particularly against African Americans and Native Americans in this land's history. We should lament their long history of abuse suffered at the hands of white majority power brokers we should labor to assure that no such abuse of power can ever be systematized into law policy practice or god forbid into the life of our church again it's not because this is the trendy word at the moment This is because we are rooting ourselves in a biblical worldview. We have been redeemed by Christ to love even our enemies and we should then never dismiss the fact that people combine hatred and power to hurt others. And when they do, we should come in and say, I get this. I understand this. Yes, it's bad. In fact, it's worse than you think. And the outcome is judgment before the throne of Christ. We take this very seriously. And I think then we must recognize as believers and maybe particularly as white majority believers all the difficulties that we have faced in the pursuit of prosperity, particularly African Americans have faced Also, with all of those challenges, the challenge of slavery, the challenge of segregation laws, the challenge of redlining, more recently, liberal schemes contributing directly to the breakdown of black urban society. And we should lament, such trials should not be dismissed by people who have no generational experience of any of this resistance probably includes the immigrants among us here. We don't have that story. We don't have that history. We get nowhere by simply dismissing it. And we get nowhere by jumping on the world's solutions. We know the sin of the human heart. We know what destruction it is capable of producing. And we know the redemption in Christ alone is the only answer for the reconciliation of this world. The reconciliation it desperately needs. Here, we should raise our voices and point to Christ crucified and risen. That's not dismissal. That's not exiting the fight. That's taking the fight to the very place where it needs to be taken. We know the redemption in Christ alone is the answer, and that's a message of hope that we need to proclaim. And here's what we're bringing it back to just in the theme of the day. There is an all powerful God, all powerful, who is love. So, what this world misuses power and hatred from our God is an all powerful God who loves. And the soul that yields to the reign of the risen Christ is the soul that knows the beauty of a king who rules in love and extends his grace every day. May that grace shine from us in our witness to a troubled world as we witness the fallout of sin. Let's pray. Lord, I I come to you in prayer here. We desperately need you. No one has all wisdom in these matters. And we're very concerned by ideas that are presented as solutions but Lord we also recognize humbly that we have very few answers but we thank you for the big answer we thank you that you are the answer that your power has flowed to us always in love and what is good but we do pray in behalf of those who will face not your love in eternity ultimately but your judgment and we pray for repentance and rescue Lord, the sin that's in our heart blinds us. It blinds every one of us. We look at things so self-centeredly. We see the arguments of some and it's very easy to just go the other direction and be just as off track. Help us to fight this. Help us as a church to reach out to all people knowing that you have people from every tribe and language and tongue and nation that are yours. And for those sheep that are lost, may we go out to find them and bring them into the fold. Lord, I pray that you would deepen each of us in our understanding of the history of oppression that has been suffered by people in this nation and other nations. But Lord, above all, that we would look to the bondage of sin from which you have rescued us and rejoice and proclaim that message. Say that if every racial problem was reconciled and settled and fixed, that this world would be no better if it's not reconciled with you. I pray that that spirit and that that message would flow from our hearts to a lost world. We need you. We ask your help to that end through Christ.